Hello, I'm Muriel, and I love true crime. I'm Nick, and I am not a fan. Thank you for joining us. Each week, I force Nick to listen to me tell him a story of a true crime. Welcome to Muriel's Murders. This week, as promised, we give you part two of our Pearl Choate episode. Pearl's decades-long life in crime as presented by old-timey newspapers and the batshit conclusion to the Estelle and Otis Birch saga. If you are new to Muriel's Murders, welcome to the madness. If you've been around for a while, thank you so much for being a part of our lives. It's always incredible for us when you post about this podcast online and tell your loved ones about us. We want to shout out Brad and Holly, siblings in Chicago, sharing the Muriel's Murders love. Thank you to each and every single one of you out there listening right now. It's amazing that we're all here. It's the morning. I don't know if you could tell by our voices, but we're amped. We're going to bust this episode out. It's time to get to it, baby. Okay, yeah. I mean, we went to a soccer game last night and yelled a lot, and then we woke up pretty early to get this episode out on our Patreon. <laughs> so, like... <laughs> If you hear a different quality in the voice, just know it's all love, right? This is uh, Nick and Muriel's version of working extremely hard. All right. This is a true story involving murder, violence, drugs, adult themes, etc. So if any listeners are like Nick and they don't want to hear about those kind of things, please consider listening to a different podcast. Yeah. Also, it's probably worth noting that, I mean, if you're into part two, you realize this in part one, we should probably be more specific. This one also is kidnapping and elder abuse, which is a whole other set of disturbing. So that's happening. But you know how Muriel and I... Are. We're going to curse. We're going to joke. So also, if those things are upsetting, listen to a different podcast. All right, Nikki, are you ready to hear this story? No. Okay, let's get started. All right, since this is a part two, we're looking for that classic Nick recap of the last episode. Okay, commence. Nick reading off of his screen segment of the podcast starting right now. Boom. Ready? Three, two, one. Let's go. Famously, these recaps where I remind everyone of what happened in the previous episodes are Muriel's favorite part of doing this podcast. But because I am now a holy practitioner of gratitude, I too am learning to appreciate them. And today I am grateful for the chance to recap part one of the Pearl Choate story because it grants me the power to say whatever the hell I want and Muriel just gets to sit there. <laughs> of course, I shall not abuse this godlike position, but I do decree that I shall jam job one bit of insight onto this podcast that Muriel did not want me to mention last episode. From the mountaintop on which my throne sits, I will reach down and gas up my wife, Muriel. The story of killer psycho nurse Pearl Choate is hardly on any other podcast whatsoever. She has no Wikipedia page, and you really have to work hard to get to go find all this information, and Muriel did an incredible job of being one of the very first podcasters to really bring this story to life, so let's all give Muriel some cosmic props. Oh my god. Now <laughs> to like the story. You're saying. <laughs> what? I like that you gasped me at my being like, there wasn't even a Wikipedia page. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying, it's not a well-known story, you know? And if we're lucky, Muriel might give us a little tidbit uh, at the very end of this episode about a source she did find, but we'll just see if that organically comes up. I'm privy to the behind-the-scenes info on that one. We'll see what happens. Okay, boom. No more being nice about Muriel. We have to get to the story. <laughs> 
Pearl Choate is a massively intimidating, nonstop, fast-talking bully-slash-charmer. I picture her as a cross between Nurse Ratchet, the headmistress Miss Trunchbull from Matilda, and John Goodman Cyclops from Oh Brother Where Art Thou. <laughs> Muriel started the story in the 60s when Nurse Pearl showed up to take care of a childless millionaire couple in their mid-90s living in Pasadena, which can be considered a part of the greater Los Angeles area. Nurse Pearl did quick work to get the couple feeling good and their 13-room mansion in perfect working order. Then she proceeded to get the rest of the staff fired, her maybe secret husband hired, and she had the deed to the mansion in her or her brother's name. They stripped it clean. She took over their oil fields, and they had some mine out in Utah and promptly took them on a wild-ass road trip over the border to Mexico then back up to Texas. It's pretty obviously kidnapping, but the police can't prove it because the mostly blind and completely deaf husband, Otis, told the police he wasn't kidnapped. The wife, Estelle, has cousins who are completely freaked out by their disappearance. The cousins have enlisted the help of the Baptist Church, of which the elderly couple are completely devoted to and have given millions upon millions of dollars to. They also enlisted an investigative journalist who's hungry for a good story. Once Estelle's dead body <laughs> <laughs> shows up back in California, appearing to have died of natural causes. The cousins and their expendable assembly of superheroes track Nurse Pearl and Otis to a small town in Texas. As they make their move... <laughs> To try to intervene and save Otis, Nurse Pearl shows just a slight little first little flash of maybe some perhaps violence by whipping out a butcher's knife and threatening to cut the cousin's hearts out. <laughs> the journalist then learns of a long yet incomplete list of Nurse Pearl's violent criminal record, which does in fact include murder, or as Muriel put it, also murder. Muriel ended part one with the journalist warning the cousins to stay locked inside their hotel while he went to go meet with the local sheriff. Also, Nurse Pearl is not a real nurse. <laughs> That's really good, Nick. I know. Wow. So That goes without saying. I know. Days. I love your recaps. I know. They're the best. I'm amazing. Okay, great. Okay, great. <laughs> We're moving on, and now you get to try to follow that. I dare you. Okay. <laughs> Well, I'll start off by speaking a little more slowly. <laughs> so we're going to do something. Don't call me out. <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. It's early. Okay. So we're gonna start this whole thing out with who the hell is Pearl Choate, right? Yeah. Okay, so we're gonna talk a little bit about her life. And then we're going to get into back to Texas and, and the whole Birch saga. Okay. Okay, great. So we're starting with a flashback. Right. So before we get to all that, uh -huh. we're going to answer the question, who the hell is Pearl Choate? Great. All right. So the story of Pearl Choate <laughs> arguably starts in Texas in 1931. All right. So we're going back in time about, what, 40 years. Okay. Just kidding. I can't do any math. 35 years? Mm, 30 years? 30 years. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah. On the evening of Sunday, March 22nd, 1931, Mrs. F.E. Simpson left her husband in Fort Worth, Texas, and drove 40 miles to the tiny town of Decatur for a party. Naomi stayed late. And she made a brand new friend. On Monday, 
When most people were trying to squeeze in a few more moments of sleep before work, Naomi Simpson decided to make the 40-mile trek back home from the party. Okay, which also I think is probably in a town called Decatur, not Decatur. Oh, my God. But I don't know. I don't know for sure. I'm just guessing. It might be Decatur. I'm I was like, why guessing. are they spelling it like that? <laughs> Thank you. I know there's a Decatur, Georgia. And there's like lots of towns that have two or three, you know, different towns in different states with the same names. Okay. If you're from Texas, just shoot me an email. But I'm going to call it Decatur. Okay. I great. think Decatur, Illinois. There's definitely Decatur, Georgia. You know how I know that? Why? Outcast okay, talked about we're going it first back. and foremost. We're going okay. Back. <clears throat> So we're in the early hours mm-hmm. of the next morning. Yes. And Naomi Simpson decides to make the 40-mile trek back home to Fort Worth, this time with her new, powerfully built girlfriend behind the wheel of her car. Mm-hmm. So I'm getting all of this information from old-timey magazines. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming if you go to a party in the afternoon on a Sunday and you're driving home at like 3 o'clock in the morning on a Monday and you have a stranger driving your car, it's because you might be blasted, but who knows? Um, okay, right? <laughs> all right, yeah. Uh-huh. So these two women, they get in the car and they drive back to Fort Worth. As the pair drew nearer to Naomi's Fort Worth home, Naomi's companion, her new friend, suggested that they cut through Cobb Park. Cobb Park is this like really famous I think it's over 220 acre public park Mm -hmm. in the middle of Fort Worth. And it's really beautiful. So it's kind of the scenic drive to take home. Uh Uh-oh. Also maybe where someone shady does the worst things in the world. Naomi took in the large woman sitting next to her, watching as she turned the car into the dark leafy park, the entrance flanked by two empty stone towers. So the park is totally empty. Uh Uh-huh. Now, even though her new friend couldn't be more than 25 years old, she was already imposing, strikingly tall and built like a tank, dark-eyed and handsome. So, like I said, Cobb Park is this expansive public park. Yeah. And cut down the cent- it's cut down the center with this windy road. Naomi Simpson, you know, she's chilling. She's reclined in the seat, and they're driving through this park. Yeah. And she was surprised when the car rolled softly to a stop in the middle of the dark woods and her new friend cut the engine. So Naomi Simpson turned to her companion. And as she does this, she doesn't notice the masked men emerging from the edges of the dark park. No, Pearl set her up like that. I mean, I know you're not saying her name, but come on. This is Pearl. They said she set her up like this. Two men with bandanas tied across their faces ran up to the car, jumping on the running boards, thrusting their heads into the car and commanding Naomi Simpson out of the car on the grass on the side of the road. The men jerked her purse out of her hands and then demanded her diamond ring. Mm. So Naomi tries to get the ring off and hand it over, but it's actually stuck on her finger. She can't get it off. I've been there. I'm there right now. This wedding (laughs) ring has literally not come off, and I don't know that it can. Okay. Don't try to rob me of my wedding ring, folks. (laughs) Well, when she couldn't get it off her finger, one of the men grabbed her and grabbed her arm and just like forced the ring off. And Mm. if you ever have a ring that doesn't come off, you know that hurts. Yeah. So fed up after they grab her ring, Naomi just, you know, she she decides she's going to try to yank down one of the bandanas to see what the man looks like. Brave. So she reaches over and tries to yank. Yeah, brave or drunk. We are not <laughs> sure. She reaches out uh-huh. and yanks, tries to yank down the bandana. The mugger turns around and punches her in the face. Yikes. Which is 
incredibly disorienting for her. Like yeah. later she told people, you know, she saw this flash of light and she couldn't really get her ears were ringing and she couldn't really do anything. She was kind of incapacitated. Yeah, it's horrible. After that, both men ran back into the bushes. So disoriented, Naomi Simpson made her way back to her car and just climbs back in the passenger side. She's not mm -hmm. sure what else to do. Her large companion cut the engine back on and then told Naomi, hey, listen, I'm just going to finish you driving you home. Like, we're not sure exactly what she said. She might have been like, that was crazy. Uh -huh. Or she might have been like, all right, girl, I'm going to drive you home. And then we're going to be. Yeah. Whatever now that was. my friends just robbed you, I'm, I am going to take you home. Right. Nobody took her companion's purse. Right. right. Mm hmm. Instead, Naomi Simpson found herself being driven the 40 miles back to Decatur mm -hmm. or Decatur, depending on who you are. <laughs> yeah. The large woman held Naomi Simpson captive in her car in Decatur for half a day. Eventually, the woman got out of the car and just simply walked away, leaving Naomi Simpson alone in her car in the afternoon of Monday, Damn. just like 40 miles from home. So yeah. she just kind of slid over and drove her car back home. And that's what she got her, her husband's like, where were you? Everybody's freaked out, right? Right. Hell yeah. About a week and a half later, on April 4th, 24-year-old Pearl Choate was indicted on kidnapping charges. And just as a little aside, mm -hmm. four days later, Naomi Simpson shot her husband, Effie Simpson, point blank in the chest with a handgun Whoa. during a quote unquote family squabble. I just found that like Damn. aside. I was looking for her name. I wonder if if this event led them, you know, pushed them off the edge and they were squabbling a lot. Like, I wonder if she would have shot this fool if she hadn't been pushed to the brink of some crazy violent situation. Well, I mean, who knows, but we're talking about something like it's in the thirties, yeah. you know, for like, you know, a lady driving her husband's car to a party that's way far away, mm -hmm. staying until super early in the morning, coming home, having this harrowing experience. And she's they're They're well off. Her ring was worth about $2,500. Yeah. So it's like they were definitely, they lived in an apartment, but they had yeah. some money. Yeah. And, then like four days later, she shoots him in the chest. That's like, what is this scene? This I know. is a crazy What's scene. What's going on? Is right? that where, do you have more information on that? Or is that just where the, that story ends? That's where that story oh, ends. Man. Well, I have a little more information. Yeah. Um, so it was really critical for a second. Okay. And basically Naomi Simpson said, we were fighting over the gun and the gun went off, which is like, oh, you know. We've all seen Chicago. I know, it's literally the same we plot. We both reach for the gun, for the gun. <laughs> the gun, the gun, the gun, the gun. All right, all right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's your one opportunity for me to bust into musical theater and you shut it down, so that's it for the rest of my life. I'm literally just trying to get one sentence out for the last five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. F Effie Simpson, the husband, yeah. is really horribly injured. And so she, he's rushed to the hospital. And he ends up making a full recovery. So he asks the grand jury, the federal grand jury, to drop the murder charges against, really? against his wife. Yeah. And as far as I can tell, Pearl Choate also got away scot-free. Mm. for orchestrating the kidnapping and robbery of Naomi Simpson. Damn. So both of these ladies 
kidnapping, robbery, scot-free, <laughs> Mrs. F.E. Simpson, shooting her husband in the chest. He said, I want to drop the charges. Charges were dropped, and then they just let it all go. God so, damn. Wild. <laughs> so in the 19, early 1930s, yeah. at barely like two and a half decades old, Pearl Choate was a high school dropout and had married and divorced already three times. Whoa, yeah. She's living life. Yeah, she surfaced briefly in the newspapers in 1934 for writing a bad check Mm -hmm. back in 1931, effectively stealing $226 worth of fancy clothing from a department store. Mm -hmm. So the headline for that, because back in the day, they used to just have news blurbs on like everyone who did any crime, right? Uh uh So the headline that I found for that one was in the Fort Worth Star Telegram, and it read, quote, court shows leniency in bad check case. For passing a bad check worth about $4,700 in today's money, mm-hmm. Pearl received a suspended sentence of five years, so she didn't see any prison time. Mm. So Pearl then disappears for about four years before appearing in the papers again. By the summer of 1938, Pearl Choate had made her way 2,000 miles to Northern California. And on August 8th, 1938, at 1 a.m., Pearl Choate walked into the Eureka Sheriff's Office to turn herself in for shooting a ranch hand in the back of the head in what she felt was a clear case of self-defense. In the back of the head? Yeah. Well, and also last, is this the one where he was sleeping? Well, come on, man. You said it in part one. I know, I know, but Okay. So Uh prior to the trial, remember this, prior to the trial, Pearl's story went like this. Now in her early 30s, Pearl had been hired as a cook on the Frank King Ranch just outside of Eureka, California on July uh, 1st of that year. Mm -hmm. About a month later, during supper or dinner, whatever they used to call the nighttime (laughs) meal, not lunch. It was probably like three o'clock in the afternoon. Whatever. (laughs) She's cooking. And a black ranch hand named Clarence Faust called Pearl names and allegedly threw a cup at her arm, causing, quote, severe pain, according to the Chico record. Mm -hmm. She said after the argument, the ranch head went to bed. So this is her story to the sheriff initially, Mm -hmm. the very first story. So she said after the argument, the ranch hand went to bed. And according to reporting for the Chico record, when Pearl turned herself into the sheriff, Quote, she said, Negroes do not dare argue with whites in the South where she was born and reared, and that Faust had been quarrelsome for days. Mm-hmm. Angered, she picked up a thirty caliber rifle in the ranch house and walked a hundred yards to where Faust was sleeping and shot him through the back of the head at close range. Unquote. God damn. So that's her account, the first account. Uh-huh. And then after that, she basically walked to the ranch house where Frank King, the rancher, stayed, and she told her boss. So Frank King allowed her to, like, pack up all her stuff and get ready to go, and then he personally gave her a ride to the sheriff's office. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like, (laughs) gotta be a gentleman. Right. The lady did what ladies do. So the trial, the story at the trial was very, very different. Mm -hmm. So according to reporting from the Sacramento Bee at the November trial, Pearl testified that Clarence Faust had, quote, made improper advances to her, and when she spurned him, they quarreled. Pearl, along with Frank King and another surviving ranch hand, testified that after their ar- the argument between Clarence and Pearl, mm-hmm. rancher, the rancher 
Frank King separated Clarence Faust and Pearl and then Faust ran around the ranch demanding someone find him a gun to shoot Pearl and that they just didn't see him find one. So then they added that piece is that he was looking for a gun. Okay. Now, Pearl then testified that Clarence Faust had actually found a gun, but instead of shooting her like he had threatened, he just basically chased her around the ranch, screaming curses at her Mm -hmm. and waving the gun around while she was screaming. Okay. So allegedly everybody worked at the ranch. Let that happen. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. They also just let him look for a gun. Right. All that stuff was happening. All right. And then... He gave up and at some point went to bed. So according to the Siskiyou News, later in the evening, Pearl found a thirty caliber rifle and, quote, went to the bunkhouse where Faust had gone to bed and attempted to find out why he was after her. So basically she went into this sleeping man's bunkhouse mm-hmm. with a gun mm-hmm. to just have like a, oh, let's talk it out. Yeah. Why do you have a problem with me? Like, no violence. Right. The gun is just there. Just it's a not- little mediation between the two of us. Right. Incidental. Pearl then testified that when Clarence Faust woke up and saw her, he turned around and looked like he was reaching for a gun. Uh So she got scared for her life, and that's why she shot him. Mm -hmm. So the jury deliberated for nine hours, and on November 21st, they found Pearl Choate not guilty of murder. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's the end of that story. (laughs) (laughs) I found those two articles, and I was like, that's... What? I mean, it's an old, it's old timey newspapers sometimes like uh-huh. do a lot of, as true crime podcasts do a lot of like editorializing, uh-huh. you know, but there's a big difference between the order of events when she first turned herself in and yeah. then they reported on it to the trial. It's like, wow, that's a lot of extra stuff got added in there. Yeah. I mean, also in what world do you walk into someone's room when they're sleeping with a gun? And, not and then and not expect them to also grab a gun. Right. I mean, clearly she killed this guy and got away with it because people were racist. Yeah. Right? I mean, that's my my opinion. But <laughs> that's what happened. That's how she got away with her first murder. Oh, God. All right. So not guilty. <laughs> not so guilty. Far. So she gets out scot-free. She's on, on the suspended sentence in Texas for this like check fraud thing. But I think she didn't have any kind God, of repercussions for that. And you said it was that. like $4,600 in modern day money yeah if you and i try to pull a scam for forty six hundred dollars right now we would be in so much trouble well she was in pretty big trouble like five years is a long time even if it's a suspended sentence mm. you know what i mean like i think that she i guess is yeah she can't keep herself under control so she just left texas and went to california yeah <laughs> like they're not gonna catch her in california for being a crazy yet right Now, Pearl kept out of the papers for the next five years. She made her way, you know, the 2,000 miles back to Texas. Mm -hmm. And on the way, she married, divorced, Mm -hmm. and then remarried, and then married again. But she remarried an old flame, a man named Calvin Langston. All right. So we're going to go back just a tiny bit. So in the late 1920s, Pearl had married an oil driller named Harry M. Hornbeck. And together, they started the 19th Street Laundry and the Y Motel. So there were just two things that they had created together. Mm -hmm. They divorced a year later. Then, at the age of 23, she married a man named Calvin Langston, who was 15 years older. They eventually divorced, and she did some kidnapping and murdering. And then at the (laughs) age of 35, she remarried him. So somehow at the end of all of this, it looks like we land 
with Calvin Langston and Pearl Choate married and now owning both the 19th Street Laundry and the Y Motel. So even when so she ended up uh-huh. inheriting or like getting those properties from a husband that was like three husbands back. Yeah. And then those two now owned those properties. Cool. And somehow she's like while she's working as a cook in California, uh-huh. she still owned those properties, presumably. Yeah. So it's kind of an interesting You'll see this a lot. It's a little hard to track, but uh-huh. she owned a lot of property throughout her life. Yeah. And she just gets a bug and she'll go work somewhere else while the other property makes money. Some, yeah. Somebody else runs it. She's she's just operating on her own frequency. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think she's true. I think she's, she's on like, a solidly psychopathic frequency. Yeah, but also this weird hoarding of wealth and everything. I mean, she... I mean, I know that we're now we're jumping back in time. This is like the Godfather trilogy or something. But uh, Muriel's Godfather, this is your <laughs> opus. Oh, my God. Francis Ford Coppola. But anyways, with Estelle and Otis, she's rich. She got rich off them and she's still doing all this weird shit. Yeah. Anyways. Well, we'll talk about that. Yeah. So Calvin Langston and Pearl had a few good years together running the properties until Calvin fell ill. Then, in April of 1945, Pearl tried to murder one of their tenants. So, Pearl, quote-unquote, Crowley, who was still using the last name of one of her previous husbands as an alias, Uh and Calvin Langston owned some apartments, and Pearl wanted to convert them into more motel rooms. Mm -hmm. So she goes over there to kind of confront these people. So Mr. and Mrs. T.H. Bird lived in one of these apartments. Mm Pearl paid the couple a visit and she basically tried to flex on them. She just demanded that the couple get out, move before their lease was up. Right. right. She's evicting them. Right. Yeah. But the birds are like, we have a lease. Yeah. We're not leaving. So yeah. they refused to go. They said, we, we still were paid through the time that we're here. We're mm-hmm. going to stay here. You can't just kick us out. So Pearl yanked Mrs. Bird's hair, scratched Mr. Bird across the face and left. Damn. A short time later, uh-huh. Pearl came back. She this is in the middle of the day, by the way, uh-huh. which is what she's. I think she does every almost every single crime in the middle of the day or like in public. Right? Uh-huh. So she goes home. Oh, she goes back to the home. She breaks the lock on the back door. She runs into the apartment through the kitchen with a massive butcher knife. So this is a excerpt from the Austin American um, from an issue of the Austin American at the time. Yeah. Quote, Mrs. Crowley had recently returned from the West Coast where she worked in the shipyards. She she was working (laughs) like she had all these properties and a husband in Texas and she was out cooking longshoremen like like out there on the shipyards. Yeah, right. It's pretty crazy. So she was uh, so continuing with the excerpt. Uh She was described in court as weighing 200 pounds and full of energy. Unquote. At one point, Mrs. Bird testified. Pearl passed me like a whirlwind going somewhere. So Mrs. Bird's in the kitchen. Uh-huh. Pearl breaks in. She like runs past Mrs. Bird. Tasmanian devil style. She launches herself at Mr. Bird and stabbed him so violently that she severed two of his ribs. Oh, my God. And he had to spend 10 days in the hospital. <sighs> Thank God he survived. This time, Pearl was convicted mm-hmm. of attempted murder and sentenced to two years. But she was released shortly after her trial was declared a mistrial. Mm -hmm. So 
before Pearl's new trial, Calvin Langston died of this long-term illness he'd been suffering from. Mm -hmm. So he died in March of 1946. They still hadn't rescheduled the trial. Mm -hmm. Less than two weeks later at her new trial, Pearl was once again convicted. This time she was sentenced to three years. Now, there were a series of appeals and overturned convictions over the next year, and I honestly can't really tell you how long she spent in prison. Mm -hmm. According to a blurb in the Odessa American, she was out on bond pending a new trial in early 1947. So I'm guessing she didn't spend more than like six months in prison, something Mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. For stabbing this guy and severing his ribs. Yeah, she's a, just a killer landlord. Yeah, well, she got out. Uh-huh. So she gets out somewhere in early 1947, and at some point she left Odessa, Texas, and moved about 250 miles north to Amarillo, Texas, to run another motel. And she stayed out of the headlines for about a year and a half before she got sued by a carpenter for Mm -hmm. unpaid work and then murdered that carpenter. Oh, no, no. In 1949, carpenter and father of seven, Alfred Monroe Allison, he went by Bud, Mm -hmm. he sued Pearl for $1,500 in unpaid bills. That's like $18,000 in today's money. So that's quite a bit of money. Yeah, it'd be like... yeah, someone doing major work on the hotel. Right. Yeah. After the lawsuit, Pearl evicted Bud Allison's family from her property. And Bud Allison won his judgment in March of 1949. So mm-hmm. the court sided with him. But Pearl didn't go to the trial and she refused to acknowledge the judgment. Mm-hmm. So a few weeks later, on the evening of April 16th, 1949, Bud Allison was parked in his truck and he was outside of a cafe that was next door to Pearl's motel. So Pearl comes barreling out of her motel. She walks straight up to Allison's truck, broad daylight again. I think it's around 5 p.m. in the summer. Mm-hmm. And she shoots him four times with a 38 automatic pistol God damn. while he sat in the truck cab. So she killed him on the spot in front of everybody in broad daylight in front of a bunch of witnesses. Damn. And then she just said, somebody call the police, right? <laughs> like we already oh, did. Girl, we're gonna, <laughs> they're all, they're, they're oh, there. They are. Pearl was convicted of murder and sentenced to 22 years in prison during her trial. She made sure to point out she didn't actually owe Allison any money. And that she didn't, quote, recollect shooting Allison. So she's her line was like, mm-hmm. Some sort actually, of this was like, a, yeah, it's a misjudgment. I don't yeah. I didn't know him any of that money and I don't care. And I don't remember shooting. <laughs> yeah. All right. The Odessa American reported that, quote, the penalty ordered has not greatly disturbed the large, handsome woman. And you mean the 22 year sentence? Yeah. She was just like, whatever. Yeah. She's like, I'm going to break out. Her lawyer visited her in jail and reported back to the paper that she was, quote, feeling fine. <laughs> Can't keep a handsome woman down. Nope. Despite being sentenced to 22 years in prison, oh, no. Pearl was paroled three years later in 1954. Mm-hmm. Now, here we lose Pearl for a little while. Hold on. What? Why? How? I don't. I honestly don't know. Killing... That's- a father of seven in broad daylight who you already robbed. You robbed him of money. You shoot him in front of everybody while he's just sitting in a car. I don't know. I literally don't know. She got she got paroled. So she was out in 1954. Do you say she got paroled? 
Yeah. Because it kind of sounded like you said she got pearled. Oh, no. She's pearled, pearled. <laughs> but so far, she's just she's just pearling her way through this existence. So here we lose Pearl for a little while. Uh-huh. Two years go by. We don't hear a whisper of her. And then after two years, she's back in the papers. This time, a lead line from the Amarillo Globe Times read, quote, a six foot, 300 pound nurse who wears a delicate ponytail and is a paroled murderess was indicted today in a fantastic tale of extortion. Uh, (laughs) Old timey newspapers are the best. I love just, she's just getting heavier, bigger, whatever. It's just all perception. It's like the strike zone in baseball. Uh, Yeah. Or like when they add extra time onto the end of a half of soccer. They're just just like, like, we feel like it's about about three minutes. minutes. In early December, 1956, Lulu Lowry was rolled into a packed courtroom to testify in front of a grand jury while lying prone on a hospital gurney. She was there to testify Uh that Pearl Crowley had kidnapped her, held her captive for weeks, and jacked her for thousands of dollars. I believe her. I don't know. At this point, I believe her. You see, after being paroled Mm -hmm. in Amarillo, Texas, after three years Mm -hmm. in prison for murder, Pearl Choate moved about 600 miles to Pasadena, Texas, to look for work. Mm -hmm. While she was there... Lulu Lowry, a chronically ill woman in her late 50s, hired Pearl, who was going by the name Elizabeth P. Langston, as a nurse in Pasadena in uh, September of 1956. Uh Uh-oh. Now, Lulu was relatively well-off. She owned a real estate company, (laughs) and she really needed full-time in-home care. Doesn't that sound familiar? Yeah. After about a month of working for Lulu, Pearl convinced Lulu that they should travel almost 600 miles east to, ter- to Kermit, Texas. After about a month of working for Lulu, Pearl convinced Lulu that they should travel almost 600 miles east to Kermit, Texas, where apparently, in her expert opinion as a trained nurse and not at all a crazy nurse imposter, <laughs> the weather was quote-unquote healthier. <laughs> So Lulu <laughs> The breeze cures cancer <laughs> So Lulu bounced with Pearl in September Right mm-hmm. she says oh you know great idea That sounds fine whatever She leaves with Pearl in September And in mid October Lulu's daughter got a strange call From a bank in Pasadena Texas Alerting her that someone Had requested a 5,000 loan Against her mom, one of her mom's properties Uh huh So she's like that's super weird and doesn't uh-huh. make any sense. So yeah. she she goes and she finds the number that Pearl gave her that where they'd be staying in Kermit and she calls it. And Pearl answers, but she refuses to let, you know, this woman speak to her mother. Yeah. Okay. So alarm bells are going off. The daughter, to her credit, immediately just drops everything and flies to Kermit to figure out what the hell is going on. <laughs> yeah, for sure. In Kermit, she finds Pearl but not her mother. Her mother's not there. So she's there confronting Pearl. Pearl jumps into Lulu's car mm-hmm. and took takes off. She drives away. So the daughter chases Pearl 
about 46 miles in this like wacky car chase yeah. to Odessa, Texas. Yeah. Ultimately, she lands there. She finds her mother being held captive in a in a trailer in the driveway of, a, of an old house that Pearl had been renting. So Pearl just drove to the mom? She yeah, just she led drove her to the there? mom and the, and the daughter chased her. I think Pearl probably thought she could lose her. Daughter yeah. chases her. She finds her in this like old rental with this trailer parked in the, in the driveway and her mom is inside. God damn. So Lulu tells her daughter, you know, thank God you're here. Pearl has been forcing me to write checks to her totaling tens of thousands of dollars and she's forced me to sign over all my stocks. And while they're talking about this, Lulu's daughter... Like, you know, she calls her husband uh-huh. trying to figure out what's going on. She's just trying to, you know, put the pieces together and game plan something. Yeah. And while this is happening, Pearl sneaks away and uh-huh. she goes on the run. Yeah. So that's can- good for them, man. Because that a butcher knife. Last time we know this woman used a butcher knife once. I mean, our time thing is messing around. But the last time someone tried to intervene, she, she pulled with a butcher out a butcher knife. knife. So lo- Lulu's daughter got off pretty good, it, sounds like. Yeah, I mean, definitely she ran away, right? Yeah. So she was actually on the run when Lulu was doing this dramatic testimony from mm-hmm. a hospital bed in this courtroom, right? They yeah. still couldn't find Pearl to, to serve the papers. Eventually, police finally catch Pearl. And according to the Wichita Falls Times... Pearl ended up testifying that, quote, the money was spent jointly by her and Lulu Lowry to set up an ice cream stand. <laughs> this real estate mogul. She wants like, literally <laughs> took the, the, the she took the stand and said, oh, well, they, she wanted to open an ice cream stand with me. And I just was helping her. This is all a misunderstanding. <laughs> Did they ever open up an ice cream stand? No. And she said it was actually Lulu's idea to operate the stand together. She's uh-huh. like, Lulu wanted to open a stand with me. Me. And so I said, sure, that makes sense. And that can pay for our rental in Odessa, Texas. Uh, this just really reminds me in your personal life when your great grandma uh, was hanging out with her nurse and your great grandma was not being manipulated in any way. But her and her nurse would just go to the casinos. My grandma was like 104 years old. And yeah. we found out like kind of through accident that they had been just having all these wacky adventures. <laughs> and like when we just to be that's cool. I don't have a problem with that. Yeah. But we definitely like showed up and it was pretty chaotic. Like this nurse wasn't just like really good at her job and also went on wacky adventures she was like doing a lot of shady stuff well it was hilarious too because she had to use the elevator that your great grandma had to use to go up the stairs yeah also the nurse had to use that elevator so she wasn't like you know she it wasn't was like all, spry she might have herself needed a nurse and then the other thing was is there was all this money allocated i guess to groceries and they were just eating McDonald's. They were just eating McDonald's and my great-grandma would take a bite of McDonald's and then they'd freeze it and take it out and she'd eat the rest of it later. <laughs> we were just like, what? I mean, everybody seemed happy with the yeah. arrangement, but it was pretty crazy. She's like, yeah, we go to the casino. She bought me a car. And that, that same grandma, this person backed out and knocked her over. Remember that? Yeah, she, when she was like 103 years old. She got hit by a car and it didn't hurt her at all. Yeah, she was fine. She's okay. really tough. Okay, yeah. great. So I couldn't find a lot about this trial, but basically from what I can tell at the mm-hmm. end of all of this, it just was like chalked up to a misunderstanding. So ultimately Pearl was just charged with stealing about $2,000 from Lulu. She never returned the stocks. 
you know, like the what? claim she of, kept the stocks, like the claim of saying like, oh, we were trying to open an ice cream stand together. Yeah. Just they were like, well, you say one thing and you say the other and we're just going to call it a wash. <laughs> she wasn't not charged with kidnapping or anything. No. Oh she was like, I, I don't know why. You know, I think the whole line was like, I don't know why she's changing her mind now. But uh-huh. she agreed to go to Kermit with me. She wanted to open this ice cream stand. Now, all of a sudden, she doesn't want to do it anymore. I think and through any of this, no one figured out that she wasn't a real nurse either. No, uh, that kind of never happened. <laughs> she did, however, have her parole revoked and for the murder and went back to prison. They were like, you're mm. acting like a crazy ass. So yeah. even though the judgment was only for $2,000, she did have to go back to prison. Uh-huh. And this time she served about six years. So uh-huh. she was there for a chunk. Yeah. I bet you she was fucking a absolute menace behind bars <laughs> just beating women's asses i bet you she was fucked up in there okay <laughs> i bet you she was i'm just saying so she was released six years later uh-huh. and in 1963 she made her way to los angeles in 1964 she started working as a nurse for the elderly mm-hmm. and then Somehow, this is just a little side note. She was also handed a suspended 90-day sentence for malicious mischief to a vehicle. I don't know the details about that, mm-hmm. but like she couldn't even be in LA for a year without doing some sort of <laughs> weird thing. She keyed some fool's car. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. In April of 1965, she registered as a certified nurse in Los Angeles. And in July, the Altadena Nursing Agency did zero background checks before sending her out to take care of a millionaire couple, the Birches of Pasadena. Oh, and this is where we started the story last time. And now we return to Breckenridge, Texas in 1966. Okay, so, so we're out of our Robert De Niro, Sicily backstory. Right. And back with Al Pacino chilling in Nevada. So this is really who uh-huh. everyone is dealing with. Now we understand, like, this is not just any lady, right? Mm-hmm. This is this lady who has, she's like a... She's murdered a couple people. She's done all this stuff. She's served prison time, mm-hmm. right? So now this is who we're talking about. So Estelle Birch is dead. 95-year-old Otis Birch is about to legally adopt Pearl as his daughter, yeah. right? Yeah. And Pearl has just attacked Estelle Birch's elderly cousins from Iowa with a butcher knife for attempting to speak with Otis. Also, mm-hmm. Cracker Jack reporter James Phelan had just discovered this mile-long rap sheet of girls, right? Right. So that's where we're starting from. Now, we left off with reporter James Phelan in the sheriff's office speaking with local law enforcement. So they're there kind of hashing out the details of Pearl's background, Mm -hmm. which just for the record, for the things she wasn't convicted for, like those aren't on her record. Right. So now we know a lot of stuff, but like that, that stuff they don't even, some of that stuff they don't even know. Right. So while James Phelan is speaking with the sheriff, the Iowa cousins have escaped from the motel and they bust in the police station. They've been talking to like a lawyer and they decided, you know, after hiding in the motel for a little bit, they're like the hell with it. We want to press charges against Pearl for the butcher knife attack. So they, that makes sense. Right. They want to like press assault charges. Yeah. So the police are like, all right, 
let's get her. Maybe this will force something out, you know, that we can kind of try to get Otis out of this situation. Yeah. So Pearl is arrested that same afternoon. Now, mm. if you're thinking of the timeline, just for the record, yeah. 10.30 in the morning, the Iowa cousins go and try to talk to Otis in this little house at the edge of town where yeah. Pearl's keeping him captive, right? Pearl screams at them and tells him to go away. Then they go to the lawyer who's representing Otis yeah. and they set up a meeting. That meeting happens at 2 p.m., on the same day, on this Tuesday afternoon. So at that meeting, <laughs> they get attacked by this butcher knife, right? Yeah. So they leave and run back to the motel. Then the reporter goes to the sheriff's station. This is all the same day. Yeah, yeah, And yeah. while they're at the sheriff's station, maybe four o'clock in the afternoon, the cousins come in, they file charges. That same afternoon, they arrest Pearl and bring her to the station. Got it. And Pearl shows up to the station in the back of his squad car wearing this crisp white nurse's uniform or hair in a bun looking like totally professional, right? Uh-huh, yeah. She, when she exited the back of the squad car, she threw a jacket over her head like a mob boss to keep reporters from <laughs> photographing her face. Because there's, there's like reporters uh, everywhere, It would right? be so funny if there were no reporters there. <laughs> She's just like, uh, <laughs> being dramatic. So she goes into the, you know, police station. Mm-hmm. Police booked her and fingerprinted her. And then she immediately posted the $200 bail and left. Uh-huh. So. <laughs> okay. Uh, so she ended the day the way she started it just barricaded behind a curtain chilling with Otis on her way out of the jail she again covered her head with a jacket Uh and headed to her lawyer's car who was going to drive her home yeah furious at the media outside the station uh, Pearl actually started trying to attack the reporters (laughs) photographing her but she couldn't see because the jacket on her head Uh and she ended up kicking the newly elected state representative from Breckenridge his name was Burke Musgrove she kicked that guy in the leg (laughs) before getting in the car so that guy was like what the hell but no assault charges were filed at that time oh man that would have been really funny if he did she had to go straight back and post another $200 (laughs) So when the cousins find out Pearl had just been released from police custody, they refused to go back to the motel, right? The hornet's nest had been stirred. And now Pearl knew where they were living. Yeah. Like they kept saying, quote, no, sir. No, sir. Not with that big gal on the loose. No, sir. They would (laughs) not go back to the place. Good. So. Police arranged for the Iowa cousins and reporter James Phelan to uh-huh. stay at a local rancher's house for safety. So they just. Oh, that's safe? Well, I mean, he's like, he was a really wealthy rancher. He's uh-huh. got a lot of property and I'm assuming guns. And it was just like, you uh-huh. know, the I mean, the motel obviously is not that safe. Right. Uh-huh. Everybody's scared of her. <laughs> so. The problem with this is that this leaves Otis completely alone in the little house at the edge of town with this giant, mad, crazy-ass nurse, right? Yeah. So that Tuesday night, same day, the Iowa cousins recovered from their knife attack in the ranch. James Phelan dug into Pearl's extensive police record and two teams of Texas Rangers staked out the Choate house at the edge of town, hoping to discourage or prevent any suspicious behavior. Mm -hmm. When dawn broke, the Texas Rangers made a discovery. The house was completely empty. Oh, she did sneak away. In fact, it had been empty since the previous afternoon. About an hour after Pearl had posted bail, 
She went home, she loaded Otis, broken hip and all, into a red Dodge Charger and blasted out of Breckenridge. Oh, that's a dope-ass car, too, in the 60s. Mm. Hell the yeah. Iowa cousins filed another kidnapping complaint and a warrant was issued for Pearl's arrest. So police sent word to the Mexican border like alerting all entry points. Yeah. But Pearl wasn't going to Mexico, you silly bitches. <laughs> she was heading north. She landed with Otis 150 miles north in Altus, Oklahoma, where they signed a marriage license using recently obtained Oklahoma fishing licenses as proof of ID. Pearl then drove them to a local minister who married them while they sat in the car. Oh, my God. Also, Otis can't hear anything. Right. <laughs> and so I guess she's not her, his daughter. That They abandoned that and she went for Yeah, it gets life. a little complicated. We'll get into that. Uh, uh-huh. So... After they got married, Pearl drove straight back to Breckenridge, 150 miles. She carried Otis across the threshold of the house, and then she went down to the police <laughs> station to post her $5,000 bond on the kidnapping charge. Mm-hmm. So she's still out. Yeah. She's like, no one's going to put me in jail. So the press was hot, uh-huh. right? But this time, instead of trying to kick them, Pearl held interviews. Now... In some of these interviews, she said, basically, Birch had given all of his money to her seven months prior. So she wasn't looking to get any money. She had all his money already. Mm -hmm. And that they got married because they were in love. Mm -hmm. And she also was saying her wild flight from California to Mexico, to Texas, to Oklahoma, and back to Texas, during which Otis's wife, Estelle Birch, died. I think maybe it was, the whole thing was like two weeks prior. Yeah. All of that was simply to, quote, protect him and those devil ministers who were trying to get his money. Right. Okay. So she's going after the Baptist church. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I believe, I think just like a, a few days later on October 26th, one distinguished reporter, Virgil Moore, the editor of the Breckenridge American, managed to get an interview with Otis. And this is mm-hmm. the only press interview that they got with him. Mm-hmm. Virgil Moore's first question, written in large letters on a piece of paper, was whether he was married to Pearl. So Otis goes over the question with his magnifying glass. Remember, that's how he communicates. Mm -hmm. He reads with this magnifying glass. And he answers clearly, no. Mm. Meaning, no, I'm not married to Pearl. Right. So Pearl snatches up the pad of paper and writes out, tell him it's okay. Otis then again clears his throat and he and he answers the question. He says, I didn't go inside. I signed the license, but I didn't know we were married. I sat in the car. I didn't go in. I didn't know he was a preacher. If that's all it took, then we are married. <laughs> what? So <laughs> that's like... So he's agreeing that they're married? He's like, whatever. I didn't know I was married, but I guess <laughs> oh, I am. Man. So everybody's sitting there with bated breath like, yeah, right. oh my God, it's all coming down. Yeah. I but, guess we're married. Which is not, it's not coming down. No, not at all. Birch told Virgil Moore he didn't like living in California. Quote, every day I got six or seven letters from people there wanting something. Mm. When asked if he wanted to stay in Breckenridge, Texas, he asked, is this Breckenridge? And then mm-hmm. when they said, yeah, it's Breckenridge, he said, yes, it's very comfortable here. And finally, I want to protect this little girl. Meaning Pearl. 
Yes. Okay. So she's convinced him that she's hiding from someone or need you know needs protection. Right. Mm-hmm. According to James Phelan's reporting for the Saturday Evening Post, I'm going to read you just a quote from um, his like article, this big famous long form article. The interview quote took place on Wednesday night, October 26th. On Friday. Otis and Pearl went into court on a habeas corpus hearing on Harlan Moen's complaint, that's the Iowa cousin, mm-hmm. that Pearl was holding Otis against his will. It was the same day the court had scheduled the hearing on the plan for Otis to adopt Pearl. The Oklahoma wedding made the adoption not only unnecessary, but unseemly, mm-hmm. and the matter was dropped. At the habeas corpus hearing, Otis denied that Pearl was holding him against his will. He said he had a lot. He had left California because the authorities wanted to take me and make a test for insanity. He did not identify the authorities, and he said this information had come to him through Pearl Choate. Mm-hmm. So that gives you an insight and as to how their like dynamic worked. Sure. Throughout the two-day hearing, Otis Birch, still completely deaf, sat unmoving in his wheelchair. In fact, remember that he had gotten a hearing aid way back in in June of that year. Yeah, but then they had like magically lost the batteries. Right, and so Pearl he just couldn't replace them. So there is a solution to his deafness. It's yeah. not like a permanent thing. You could hear okay with them, but yeah. right when the FBI caught up with Pearl and the Birches in Mexico, Pearl said the hearing aids had ran out of batteries. Right mm-hmm. now at the habeas corpus hearing, Pearl actually testified that she was like, "Sorry, guys, unfortunately." We're just still out of batteries. <laughs> she still like admitted it in court. <laughs> so Pearl testified in court that she were batteries hard to get back then. No, Is there anything no, that's real about it's that? It's not real. I mean, maybe who knows? But I, I, I sincerely doubt it. Yeah. So I mean, in court, in court, Pearl testified <laughs> that she just wanted to protect Otis Birch from the devil ministers after his money. Mm-hmm. Saturday, October 29th, at the end of the day. The presiding judge ruled that Otis Birch was not being held by Pearl against his will. Mm-hmm. So that was it. With that, she wheeled Otis out of the courtroom with a big old smile on her face. <laughs> and Put that your, was it. <laughs> Put your knife in one hand, uh, smile on the face. And that was it. There yeah. were some attempts to disqualify the marriage. Um, the biggest one was there was like multiple witnesses that claimed that Pearl Choate had actually married that Los Angeles chauffeur, Houston yeah. Perry, in Mexico in 1965. Yeah. And potentially had never obtained a divorce. There were people who were living in the Compton duplex that the three lived in. She was also renting it out. So like uh-huh. when we're saying she was doing stuff in other states while she was in Texas, she was still running a scam. So she was renting out her duplex and Houston Perry was collecting rent. Yeah. And so the people there were like, oh, her husband comes to collect the rent. Right. You know, everybody is saying her husband, her husband, her husband. So right. police definitely looked into that, but no one could ever find any sort of uh, marriage license. And they what, went down what came of him? Did he ever reemerge from his because la- we left him in mexico i don't he doesn't really re-enter the storyline yeah. but um but he does at this point they do say like one person even says i i saw i went with them to mexico and saw them go into a courtroom and come out or something uh-huh. like that so they had people like really who saw something happening yeah it seems like a lot of people were definitely sure they were married right but nobody could find a marriage license yeah. there was just no actual record of it and yeah. no record of divorce 
Uh, in response to the rumors of her potential bigamy, Pearl said, quote, I don't recall much of my life before 1953 yeah. because I died at that time. Pearl said, <laughs> well, that's a record scratch moment. So Pearl said, quote, I was unconscious for about 48 hours and sometime during that time I died. Uh-huh. So I don't know what this she is. She maybe believes that. She does enough crazy stuff where I could see that she actually thinks that that is 100% what happened. Yeah, she said, I I passed out. I don't know. This is all like basically from, we'll talk a little bit about this, but this is from James Phelan's reporting. But Mm -hmm. this is like something she publicly said like to press about how, I don't know if I am a bigot. I mean, mean, a bigot. (laughs) I don't know if I have multiple husbands or not. I can't remember anything. And I, you know, so maybe I do, maybe I don't, but I died. So whatever. Um, Everything in her entire life was a total blank after 1953. (sighs) So, or before 1953. Also, that's dumb because she got married. Allegedly, she got married to this guy in 1965. So it doesn't matter if she had amnesia for like her entire (laughs) life up to 1953. They're talking about something that happened five, like 10 Uh, years. Miriel cracking the case. (laughs) It's just like she says this stuff and you're like, damn. And they're like, that doesn't doesn't even make sense. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So, on March 16th, 1967, Otis Birch died at the age of 96. Uh They stayed married that whole time, and he passed away. Uh, I think the idea was like it was old age. It was just some sort of slowing of the heart. Well, yeah. I mean, she was hired thinking she was a real nurse because they needed medical attention. Yeah. They were elderly and not doing well. Right. And I don't, she gave him some medical attention. I don't know if like driving, you know, thousands of miles around the country with a broken hip was like that great of an idea. No, of co- obviously it wasn't. So Pearl had Otis buried in Dallas, Texas, 1500 miles away from his wife of almost 70 years Jeez. who had been entombed in the Birch family crypt in Inglewood, California the year prior. Yeah. His handwritten will left everything to Pearl, leaving $1 to each of his closest relatives who had no plans to contest the will anyway. And that's, I guess, a trick. It's like, it's, if you leave nothing, it's easier to contest a will than if you leave like a token amount. And so like that, like again, she was lawyered up for years and obviously like knew how to work the legal system. So like that little touch of like a dollar for each person. That is such a dick move. But... At this point, it was estimated that the estate only had $10,000 left in it. So remember we talked in the first Mm -hmm. episode about how basically the Birch's plan was to give away all of their money by the time they died. Millions. Millions and millions of dollars, right? And so I was able to piece this together from just reading news articles. Mm -hmm. It was really, really hard to get an estimate on how much the estate was worth. Mm -hmm. And that number fluctuated a lot and it caused a lot of drama. So we'll talk a little bit about that. Mm -hmm. But nobody really, you know, he's got property in all these different states. Estelle had some like also stuff that was like under her name. And there was also all of these kind of arrangements to give all this money away. And then plus like, you know, tens or maybe hundreds of thousand dollars in legal fees at the end of this whole thing. So there's like a lot of moving pieces going around. Um, so I'll tell you the best, to my best of, of my ability, you know, how, what the money looked like. Yeah, but what honestly, she actually got out of this. Not a lot of people really know. It's yeah. still a question mark. So at this point, right, right after 
Otis's death, they estimate the estate only had about $10,000 left. And B- Pearl had been bragging about how she had the vast majority of Otis Birch's assets in cash, right? Mm-hmm. She had already gotten his mind. She had gotten all this stuff. Now, a bunch of crazy stuff happened with wills and probate. And I'm not going to get into it too deeply. Basically, there was a legal struggle involving many people um, to try and block Pearl from getting Otis Birch's money. That's the short end of it, mm-hmm. right? So you have the Baptists, you have the family. Everybody's kind of trying to kind of block Pearl from, like trying to make the will invalid. Sure. That gives Pearl all this money. And again, even during this process, no one really knew how much the remaining estate was actually worth. Now, while this estate battle was raging, Pearl Choate had one final hurrah. In the summer of 1967, so this is just a few years after Otis Birch dies, 60-year-old Pearl was back in California. She had returned all the way back to her little duplex in Compton, where she had once lived with Otis and Estelle Birch and her chauffeur slash suspected husband, Houston Perry. Mm -hmm. And Pearl was there to collect some rent. So according to the tenant... Oh, this doesn't usually end well. No. According to the tenant, a Miss Harris, that's how she's identified, uh-huh. Pearl had accused her of being behind on her rent. And Miss Harris claimed she had been paying the rent just as someone else as Pearl no longer owned the building. So mm-hmm. there's this... She's like, I, I am up to date. She's like, no, you don't. You owe me money. So they're having this like pretty intense argument. Yeah. So Pearl escalated things by shutting off the building's water and power and removing the doors to the apartment. Damn. So she's out there and she did it allegedly on the advice of her attorney. Uh-huh. So instead of this time, the butcher knife thing, uh-huh. she's like going through and just like dismantling the apartment as this woman's living there. That's brutal. So not knowing what to do, Ms. Harris calls her brother-in-law, Rod, who then called police and requested that they escort him onto the property and sort of help mediate with Pearl. Mm -hmm. Now, I found the transcript of the people versus Birch. Uh, This is like the the actual transcript of like (laughs) the court proceedings, like the summary of what was said in the court. Oh, right. And now her last name is Birch. Right. Exactly. All right. There's a great website called caselaw.com. So when there's like these crazy cases of different things, sometimes you can find all of the back history of that. Uh-huh. Okay. So we're going to talk a little bit about this. So according to the people versus Birch, this is how Pearl was charged with attempted murder of two police officers. <laughs> When police showed up with the brother-in-law, right, Pearl lost her mind. She started screaming that she wanted everyone off her property or she was going to kill them. Uh Now, here are some excerpts from the transcript. When the brother-in-law, Rod, walked up to the duplex, Pearl yelled, quote, there's another one there. That's another one. He wants to kill me. She also stated that Mr. Ferguson had a gun. Officer Herpin told the defendant, Mr. Ferguson, who's the Mm brother-in-law, that Mr. Ferguson did not have a gun. It was obvious that Mr. Ferguson could not have a gun concealed on his person as he was wearing a pair of tight Bermuda shorts and a skin-tight (laughs) t-shirt. Yeah, he's a sexy dude from the 60s. You can't pack any heat in it. Exactly. He's packing enough heat naturally, baby. (laughs) I'm in Compton. I'm loving life. That's like the first thing I thought. I was like, oh, man, this guy's awesome. So the defendant, Pearl, continued to yell quite loudly, get them all off my property or I will kill them. 
(laughs) (sighs) When the officers told the tenant to go back inside their units, we're talking about the woman who initially had the conflict. Right. Um, I think this was just an attempt to de-escalate the situation. Mm -hmm. There was this loud bang and the brother-in-law felt something brush the top of his head. One of the officers stepped inside the doorway to try to figure out what was going on and he, quote, observed her, Pearl, with a rifle in her hand and the weapon aimed in my direction, yelling, I'll kill them all, I'll kill them all. (laughs) At this point, the defendant was holding the stock of the rifle in her left hand at about hip level and was moving the bolt action with her right hand. So she was reloading. Jesus Christ. Thank God she missed. At this point, the police realized Pearl had shot at the group with a 22 rifle, barely missing the brother-in-law, yeah. a nearby officer, and a man out walking on the street. The bullet actually went through this crowd of people and then through the window of a nearby apartment, but somehow missed the occupants. So she went through like... Oh, she almost killed like 12 people. Yes. Everyone's just feeling this thing brush past them. The brother-in-law described the incident as, quote, like a firecracker goes off real close to you. He was not injured. Immediately prior to the shot, Uh he had ducked his head to avoid striking it against a low-hanging tree limb. That's why he didn't get shot. Man, that's that's the Lord at work. The leaves of the tree just above his head shattered and dropped to the ground. (gasps) He then turned around and saw one of the officers pull out his gun and tell the defendant, quote, that would be enough of that. (laughs) Give me, give me your gun, lady. Then, of course, Pearl gets into this standoff with police where they're all pointing at, you know, pointing guns at each other with Pearl loudly repeating she'd kill them all. Mm -hmm. But as she tried to get a second shot off, Mm -hmm. the rifle jammed. So that's when they were kind of seeing her trying to move the the bolt action. Some spirit above was like, enough. You're done, lady. (laughs) Afterwards, police say... Quote, the defendant continued to say, get them off my property. I'll kill them all. I'll kill them all. They want to kill me. Get them off my property. I'll kill them all. <laughs> she just said that like 75 times. Yeah, in front of a bunch of people. Again, she yeah. just like has, she doesn't care. Yeah, right. Pearl was convicted for that stunt in January of 1968. Her story at trial was that the gun had gone off accidentally. <laughs> <laughs> she's just constantly showing up with guns and be like i don't know it she's just like, went off yeah yeah uh somewhere in there pearl had a heart attack mm-hmm. and survived mm-hmm. and when she recovered in june of 1968 she was sentenced to two sentences of one to ten years in prison for trying to murder the two police officers and both of those sentences were scheduled to run concurrently. So she could easily get out in one year, which mm-hmm. of course she did. Mm-hmm. All right. In September of 1970, Pearl finally wins the Birch estate battle. Mm-hmm. So she's standing to inherit what was now estimated to be around $200 million. Jesus. Unfortunately, by December, about three months later, of the same year, by most accounts, the 200 million figure was a huge mistake. So it was like she got into all this legal trouble uh-huh. and while she's going to trial and getting sentenced, she gets this verdict back Yeah, and it's like $200 million. And then just a few months later, they're like, actually, no. <laughs> You're getting 175 bucks. On December 13th, 1970, the Macon News reported that at least in Texas, 
all anyone could find was around $2,500 in the estate. And then debt for the funeral that she threw for Otis Birch was twice that. So that was like, she had $5,000 worth of debt just for the funeral. Pearl's lawyers claimed that the estate held millions in property in states outside of Texas. Mm -hmm. But at first glance, no one could find those properties. Mm -hmm. The Texas-based Mercantile National Bank and its lawyers who were handling the estate in Texas never to this day have found more than $2,678 in assets. And that's where the story ends in newspapers in 1970. According to a 2022 article for the Dallas Morning News by Virginia Hammerly, Pearl served 20 months for attempted murder of the two Compton police officers and then was released. Mm -hmm. According to this article that I found in 2022, Pearl allegedly died in 1983. I couldn't find her obituary anywhere. Uh huh. Was that like a big extensive 2022 article? It was just kind of like an overview of like, remember this day in history sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But um, in terms of her death or any news after 1970, I just couldn't find anything. Mm -hmm. There just weren't any articles. And and there wasn't any article like saying, oh, they found the estate to be actually worth $100 million or yeah. confirmed that the estate is worthless or Estelle died penniless or not Estelle or yeah. Pearl died penniless. penniless. There was right. nothing like that. Yeah. You know, and I also couldn't find any record of what the estate ended up being worth in the end. Did the Baptists ever try to defend themselves in the all this court of public opinion and being called the devil priests and whatever? I mean, I mean, I think people kind of eye rolled a lot of that. Yeah, I mean, nobody was thinking they that were Pearl not thinking correct. that. <laughs> yeah. Sure, okay, that did not warrant a rebuttal. I don't know. I didn't see yeah. anything. People were just like, "Are you kidding?" <laughs> okay. Uh, According to Preston McGraw for the Tampa Tribune, the Baptists gave up the fight for the Birch estate in early September of 1970, conceding to Pearl. So that's mm -hmm. part of why Pearl kind of won the estate battles because they just gave up the, the case. Yeah. The Baptists' Los Angeles lawyer, David E. Agnew, said, quote, the charitable beneficiaries whom I represent as a group have directed me to abandon the contest. Pearl took all of Otis's records with her so that there are no coherent records, just a big gap. Agnew said, quote, but all I've been able to find out is that the estate is almost worthless. Mm. And that's it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, man. <laughs> it's the wildest thing. I, I mean, it's one of the wildest things I've ever read. It's okay. just like, how? All right, Muriel. Are you going to tell the people about this website you found that sort of was okay? Well, the to... first the first thing I'm going to say yeah. is that uh, a lot of this was based on reporting from James Phelan. Uh -huh. So we said this in the first episode, yeah. But basically, like the press just didn't pick up this story until the very end, until mm -hmm. after Estelle's death, mm -hmm. you know, and and then you know the press starts to pick it up. Yeah. But James Phelan was like the person who pieced this whole thing together, which yeah. was really fascinating. So a lot of the like. Um, a lot of like the quotes from different things towards yeah. the end of the story are all coming from his article for the Saturday Evening Post. Right. And that is titled How to Marry a Millionaire. Uh-huh. That came out in 1966. Right. And sort of hasn't been resurfaced in any way. It just exists in the weird 
internet databases back there. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll share this. I don't... <laughs> I just thought it was funny. Yeah. Is that the only reason I was able to really start to piece this together is because there's this awesome blog. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I don't use a lot of blogs and stuff like that, but I will use them if... Um, they have like primary sources. And so what this person did was they went through and they like meticulously organized all of these archived articles. So then I could find the articles online and read them myself and pull stuff out of them. But they did a whole database of like every article that she was mentioned in. And one thing that this person did that was really cool is they established this timeline because she has all these aliases and Uh she's married all these different people. So it was really hard to track her name through the, like if you're searching a newspaper archive database, like she's going by Elizabeth, she's going by Pearl, she has a different last name. And so it takes a while to actually sift through everything and figure out, you know, the timeline of how events happen and find those articles, right? Uh And I was like, God, this blog is really great. It's not a lot of like original writing. It's just awesome, like archive of primary sources. Yeah. And... (laughs) <laughs> anyway, I did a little digging because I was like, who's this guy who's making this blog? Yeah. And it turns out this guy's like, uh, <sighs> basically, he wrote this blog called Misander- unknownmisandery.com. And so he spent like all of his time compiling this database of women who's committed crimes to, like prove that the world hates men, I guess. <laughs> So it's right, because misandry is about the the fact that the world hates men. Right, it's like misogyny, but for men. And, yeah, uh, and I just thought it was. I was like, I was just like so hyped off this guy. Obviously, our politics don't align of like <laughs> his worldview. Yeah, but he like has another. He, he just does a lot of uh, online activism, and it's just a very like I thought like a very you know like cr- true crime enthusiast, uh-huh. like really well-documented academic kind of way of presenting this information. Very cool. And right. I was like, what's your point, dude? <laughs> He's like, the point is that women are worse than men. <laughs> it's, like, okay. it's such a uh, weird, it's just like a very strange thing. Like to, at the end of the research, be like, who did, who did put this blog together? I love this guy. And I was like, Oh, <laughs> you put this together for totally different reasons. <laughs> you did. <laughs> so anyway, don't dox me. I don't know. He's probably not going to listen to this. But he's, <laughs> yeah. You know, it was, yeah. it was very... He uh, did a good job. Thank you so much for listening to Muriel's Murders. Muriel stole all this research from a man. <laughs> <laughs> also, just for the record, when Muriel does this research, she organizes it in her own interesting, creative way. So she actually literally never steals research. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you bring so much like creative joy to it. It's really fun. Anyway, she did all that kind of thing and hosting, and I did all the technical, boring stuff. This podcast was recorded <laughs> in our living room. To help support the podcast and to unlock exclusive episodes, please sign up for our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Muriel's Murders. Find us on social media at Muriel's Murders, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok. Our DMs are open. We try to follow you back. It's great to see you over there. You can email us, murders at gmail.com. And please, you know, if you like the show, rate and review Muriel's Murders on Apple Podcasts. Listen, it really does help us grow. And it's been too long since we got a five-star review where people say nice things about us. And we are thirsty. thirsty. Give it to us. If you're listening on Spotify, there's lots of ways to interact. There's yeah. there's new stuff like you we do a Q&A and you can... Yeah. 
review or rate the podcast. Yeah. If you send it to other people, they can be like, oh, this is great. Bump us up in the algorithm. Yes. Our music is by Mario Castellini. Find him on Instagram at Castellini Beats. All right. That's it. See you later. Bye. Bye.